Folks, this week on the Pre-Rail Podcast, we had the opportunity to sit down and chat with Jeremy Goodrich. He is the owner of Shine Insurance Agency. Uh, we got into a, a really neat discussion on the portfolio and optimization of the portfolio. Uh, Jeremy's experience runs the full gamut, everything from a first-time homebuyer to very complex uh, multifamily and commercial portfolios. Uh, we talk a great deal about the efficacy of individual policies versus master policies, ways to create efficiencies. Uh, we're going to actually take them up on an offer to analyze the portfolio. We have found that the best way to create more value for your real estate portfolio is to not go buy another piece of real estate until you've optimized your existing portfolio. And Jeremy's team seems to do a hell of a job doing that. Jeremy Goodrich, don't miss it this week, folks. Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. We're joined this week by Jeremy Goodrich. He's the owner of Shine Insurance Agency. Uh, Jeremy has some remarkable content. Um, uh, it, it runs a, a pretty wide uh, band of the demographic he's targeting, but his base and his agency covers from the first-time home buyer literally to complex commercial transactions on the insurance side. Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. James, it's a pleasure. Excited to speak to your audience and just share a little bit about the insurance world, hopefully make it kind of exciting for folks who maybe have seen it as not so much in the past. Yeah, so uh, insurance is one of those necessary deals that uh, I think most of us, to, to be candid, don't spend enough time getting in the weeds on. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate that usually it takes an event you know, some sort of occurrence before we start to pay attention to our policies in a meaningful way. Uh, but it is something that we absolutely should be looking at closely from Jump Street. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, if we think about insurance as just a little tiny piece of how we manage risk, I think it starts to make a lot more sense. Like risk is something that we dig into every single day, every decision we make, whether we're picking up a new property or deciding who we want to rent a property out to, we're deciding what the balance of risk is. If we're going to make a big investment, if we're going to make a small investment, all those kinds of things. And insurance is just a tool inside of our risk strategy, right? It's a way to pass on some of the big, biggest risks. I think that if we didn't have insurance, this is the positive of it. If we didn't have insurance, none of, none of your listeners would be real estate investors. The only people who would be able to invest in real estate are those who could absorb million, millions of dollars in loss if a fire burns down a property or someone slips and falls and, and you know is injured and files a lawsuit against you. Those would be the only real estate investors out there. And so insurance in a small way levels the playing field. And I think that's just one of the positives about the role it plays in, in your investing journey. Yeah, no doubt about it. So uh, you, you own the, your own agency and, and I'm always curious about the journey. How did you end up uh, getting involved in insurance? If we can go back a bit. 
Absolutely. I was an elementary school teacher for 13 years. So insurance was definitely not on my plate. I grew up a pastor's kid. I was always kind of a, a teacher, a servant. That's what my parents have been as well. And so, you know, the idea of going into something where it's a little more lucrative, lucrative finances are a key part of the process was not at the top of my mind. Um, I met my now wife and business partner while I was an elementary school teacher, and she ran her dad's agency. She was a third generation insurance agent. Um, making a long story very short, in the end, uh, her dad sold his agency to a big financial conglomerate. She was ready to move on to something else. I had been a teacher for 13 years. That was kind of enough for me. I was ready for another adventure as well. And so we came together in 2013 and started Shine Insurance with the intention of just changing the way people feel about insurance. So it was like, how can I bring a teacher's heart and a teacher's mindset to a world that kind of seems gross and slimy? Can, can those two things come together? And over the course of the last 10 years, I've done the best to bring them together together that I can. Was there a, a trigger like that for you? Was there a, a moment or a book or something that inspired you to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stop trading time for money, you know, the, the famous Kiyosaki book and, and, you know, make that leap? Or was this just an organic process with, with the misses? You know, I think I've always had an entrepreneurial mindset. I'm like so many of your listeners started, you know, when I was 13, mowing people's lawns and made a bunch of, I mean, it felt like a bunch of money when I was 13. I remember buying my girlfriend when I was like 15 years old, like a gold necklace at uh, some store that doesn't exist anymore, like almost like a Walmart type place. And I just thought it was the coolest thing, right? Like I made this money on my own. I was able to scale that um, lawn care business. And in fact, I really never stopped in the lawn care world until, uh, you know, I was 36 years old. Um, while I was a teacher, I would drive up to school with my truck and my trailer and all my commercial mowers and uh, teach all day and then get done with school and go out and mow for the rest of the day. So I've been in the entrepreneurial world for a, a long period of time, but really the impetus was, you know, one, the my wife's father's agency being sold and the opportunity to uh, jump into this world. And two, I was pretty tired of living off of credit cards and simply not being able to cover even my own costs, let alone invest or grow for the future. Uh, I, I made $27,000 a year for 13 years. You know, at some point, it's just like, I can't function that way. And so those things all came together to take the leap. Now, I would say I'm still working. I'm still working towards not having a nine to five anymore. I work for myself. I think there's a great um, way of thinking about this where, you know, when you start a business, in some ways, you're self-employed, which is a little bit better than a W-2 job, because you're in charge of your own time. You're in charge of when you do it. Um, and there's no one kind of bossing you around, but you're still spending a ton of time. From that point, you want to grow into truly owning a business where you're no longer self-employed, but that business is putting off essentially passive income or at least partially passive income um, to you. And that's the where the real magic happens. And, and after 10 years, I'm really getting to that place where I'm like, okay, I'm not self-employed anymore. I have a team of eight I have passive income coming off of this business that I can now invest in real estate. I'm a passive investor in multiple real estate deals. And so I think that's the goal is to move up to that place. And that's taken almost 10 years for me because we've just taken it really slow. Um, Shine Agency has a, a really great YouTube channel. The, the videos, you know, some of the videos have, at least the ones I saw, 80, 90,000 views. 
um, and you focus on some detail that I have seen agents fail to focus on and provide. If you could talk about where all of that content came from and why you, you decided to produce it, and then we can graduate from there. Yeah, I mean, I think it all starts from having been a teacher, right? So when you teach third and fourth grade or something, you're trying to do a couple of things. One is you're trying to get the basic foundations underneath the thing that you're engaging in. And two, you're trying to inspire them that the topic is interesting. And somehow, to give you an example, uh, when I was teaching math, I taught a businesses class, kind of what we were, we've been talking around, about where each kid created their own business. The fun part was it didn't have to be real. It could be anything they wanted. So some kids sold planets, some kids sold waterfalls. People sold all these different kinds of things, right? And then we would exchange things and there was a whole process underneath it. And so I'm always trying to do some, you know, combine those two things, the foundations underneath something and the excitement and interest in it. And so when I knew I wanted to try and help some first-time home buyers, and this was from an insurance perspective at first, I read a book by Jay Baer, who is a great marketing author, has lots of good books. Uh, one of his first books is called Utility. And he said, you've got to, to have success in business. You've got to really refine who your ideal client is, and then just try and do good stuff for them doesn't have to have anything to do with your product. Just put yourself in the center of their journey uh, in any way that you can. So I was like, okay, my, my ideal client is a first-time homebuyer. How can I help? And I was like, well, how can I teach them the process of buying a home, of course? And so I interviewed uh, realtors. I interviewed lender to lenders. I interviewed title company owners and inspectors and appraisers and everybody in between. And my intention was, okay, how can I teach people in a really simple way, the process of buying a home. This isn't to replace a realtor or a lender. This is to facilitate under the bottom of those some foundation. So when they get to their realtor, they've got their pre-approved for their mortgage. They've got their credit as good as they can get it, right? I, I knew I was helping realtors in some ways in, the, in this. And so I created a bunch of videos, one being the 20 minute, just how to buy a home from start to finish. And they, you know, they just kind of took off. So I think that video has over a million views and, and the other ones wow. have a lot as well. And, and I was fortunate because I was two, two, started in 2015. So there were a lot fewer YouTubers when I started posting those things. Um, but the intention was simply, how do I explain things as simply and clearly as possible while providing enough information to actually help someone in their journey? In the real estate world, folks just don't know it. They're going through a very foreign experience and your content, I think, offers uh, some comfort and really boils it down for them because people just don't know the process the way we do. Yeah, and I think that one thing you can do, uh, all of your listeners, when they're thinking about creating content is, what's the question you just got asked earlier today? You know, if one person is asking you a question, that means a hundred people are also wondering about that question. And so by creating content that answers it, you do two things. One is you answer questions that you know people actually have. And two, you can point back to that content um, when someone says, hey, I've got that same question. For example, I get asked the question, does as an insurance, I'm an insurance advisor, right? Does my insurance cover, cover a rental car? I get that question three times a week. So I created a video. Does my insurance cover a rental car, right? And when I respond to someone in email, I say, hey, here, and I've got you know a, a template that I send to them with basically the foundational answers. And if you want to know more about it, 
here's a video that you can watch, right? So now you've added to your service providing as you're going through the process. And then your clients are going to say, wow, this person has thought this ahead. And if you're fortunate enough to get some views on that video, then they go to that video and they're like, wow, this person that I'm working with also has a large audience on, on YouTube. That's harder to do now than it has been in the past. But I think it's really just all about answering questions that people have and providing that foundation because that's what creates the comfort. You said comfort, which I love that you said that. That feels so important to me that I could provide that to someone. And it's, it's really just answering those questions. So did uh, this feels like it came about in a very organic way for you. Uh, was there a, a marketing genius behind this and, you know, the proper tagging and production and descriptions and the metadata and all of the things that you have to pay attention to today? Or is this all kind of self-taught? It's 100% self-taught. I mean, you talk about those 80-hour weeks. I don't work as many of them as I did in the past, but you know, when I was first posting these videos, I, the first podcast ever episode I ever put out, you could, you could appreciate this. Um, I edited the audio myself and I still have a photo of what that audio looked like at the end, because it took me about 10 hours to cut out all the ums and ahs and things of that nature. Right. And so at the beginning I was doing it all myself. And, and now I have a podcast editor who helps me to take care of that. YouTube, I still do pretty much all on my own. It really is just kind of like, okay, what do I think people need right now? All right, I'm going to put it out there. And since I've been doing it for quite a few years, being able to edit a video is pretty quick. And I probably don't have the best looking videos in the world, but I just try and get it out there and, and give folks uh, some answers to their questions. It's good stuff. And the fact that you've done it organically is remarkable to me. I know what it takes and how much of a challenge that is. So congrats on that success. Thank you. Um, as you've gone through the process now, you you have grown into, or did you always offer commercial products as well on the insurance side? 100% grown into it. When we started the agency, my wife Mackenzie knew a whole lot about insurance than I did. I pretty much knew nothing. I was an elementary school teacher. I finished the school year. Uh, the week after that, I studied for the insurance exam. And that Friday, I took it. And the Monday after that, I was offering home and auto insurance to uh, folks for the first time. And so I've really just grown my knowledge from uh, personal insurance into small commercial insurance, and then from small commercial insurance into large commercial insurance. And that's all I do now is work with uh, clients who have, you know, two, 300 units of commercial real estate or larger. I have clients with six, 7,000 units. And, and so it's really just a progression, right? You make yourself a little bit better every single day. You answer a question on one day that you didn't know the answer to yesterday. And then someone asks it of you a few days later, and you know that answer and you just start to compound knowledge. And I think that anyone who gives advice about entrepreneurship or learning anything, learning how to play the piano, right? You sat down with your piano teacher and they taught you how to read music. And then it was how to feel music. And then it was how to play a larger piece. I think that growing in any knowledge base is simply stacking little bits on top of each other. And it's those basic daily habits. So one of the videos that you have right up at the top of the site talks about, I think it's the seven red flags of a home inspection. Mm -hmm. um, give us, you don't have to give us seven, but mm -hmm. give us some of the red flags that as real estate investors, we should be keeping an eye out for 
on our insurance policies or in the insurance world? So from an insurance perspective, I mean, some of the red flags, it starts with roof. You know, I mean, if you've got an older roof, that's going to create a couple of issues. One is probably, you know, an issue for yourself as you're deciding to buy a home, um, that that's going to be a cost to replace that home. From an insurance perspective, your insurance costs are going to be significantly higher if, you're if your roof is more than 15 years old. That's because an insurance company knows there's a high likelihood that a loss is going to happen, that a claim is going to happen. So that would be one of the top things I would put no matter what size the real estate is, is the age uh, of the roof is a big piece. Um, one of the second things is whether something's in a flood zone or not. You know, I think I see uh, folks getting deep into the purchasing process and not seeing that something's in a flood zone until too late. And, you know, there's a couple of things about a flood zone. One is that you're much like higher likelihood to have a flood. So that's a risk you got to decide whether you're going to uh, take on. But two, flood insurance is fairly expensive, oftentimes more and more expensive than homeowners insurance uh, as a whole, right? You buy a homeowner's insurance policy for $1,500 a year, and then you want to add flood coverage, coverage for the natural rising of water because of a river or a rain or something like that. Um, and it's $2,000 just for that, more than for everything else, right? Um, and three, a mortgage lender is almost always going to require that you buy that insurance. And so it could be a cost that gets added in there on the back end that you didn't even realize. And if your debt to income is really close, that could potentially create a problem in, in that as well. So a roof is number one. Um, <clears throat> flood or flood zone is number two. I would say another high risk that I see a lot is this isn't as much insurance. It's not like a question. I mean, it's just foundation stuff. You know, and I think any good real estate agent knows that if you walk into a basement and it's looking shady, like, you know, the value of that property is deeply dropped. And as a buyer, I think if you walk into a basement and you see, you know, troubles or you see that in an inspection, these are high cost issues that aren't going to increase the value of sale for you on the back end. So, you know, those are three. You said I didn't need to go all seven. Um, I could keep going if you want, but those are, are three common examples. So the policies, as you had described earlier, are managed risk. That's essentially what you're trying to do here. Um, when shopping for these policies, is there, is there really a profound difference in agency to agency, carrier to carrier? If it's apples to apples, are there wins that you can make between the lines there, or is it pretty uniform across the board? Uh, it's, it's vastly different, um, especially when you leave homeowners and start to get into real estate investing, whether that's residential investing, one to four unit um, properties, or that's commercial, uh, five unit or more apartments or office buildings, uh, golf courses, things of that nature. Um, I say there's three tiers of insurance companies. The top tier, tier number one, is the best companies with the best claims experiences, with the lowest price for insurance. You say, well, that's what I want, tier one. Well, that's what everyone wants. Tier one insurance companies say no a lot. They're very picky. So for a lot of commercial real estate investors, tier one is not an option. So then we go to tier two. Tier two insurance companies 
slightly worse insurance coverage. You start to get some exclusions that are kind of scary in claims, uh, slightly higher price and slightly worse claims experience. Those companies are going to say yes more often, right? And then there's tier three companies, which is like excess and surplus. These are, these are companies who specialize in the harder to insure risks. So if you have a nine, an apartment complex that was built in the 1970s, that's 10 miles away from the coast, you've got a high risk property. Tier one companies are going to run away from that risk all day long. Maybe you could get it into a tier two company if you can show your risk management strategy, if you've got brand new roofs on it, if you've got all updated electrical and plumbing and everything else, um, there's a possibility you get in there. But most likely that property is going to be in a tier three space. So it's the job of the insurance advisor to know the differences, to know the backdoor ways to get into a tier two company when maybe it should be in a tier three or a tier one company when maybe it should be in a tier two and to have access to all those companies. Every different agency has access to different companies. If you're going to a state farm or an all state or something like that, they have access to one insurance company, right? If you're going to an independent insurance agency, they have access to as many companies as they've been able to go out and get access to. So there's some independent agencies out there that only have access to one company. There's independent, independent agencies out there that have access to three or four. Our agency has access to about 100, right? Wow. And so how, how is the difference there going to affect the competition inside the agency, affects their capacity, right? And so, you know, that is just a, a, a small answer to, are there truly differences? Absolutely. Um, and so it's access to companies, it's uh, ability to be able to get in to the right places. And then it's the ability to turn around. So our job as an, in, my job as an independent insurance agent is to have a client come to me and say, I need to insure a 10 story office building in downtown Indianapolis, Indiana. And I'll say, okay, I need a whole bunch of information from you so I can turn around and sell this to insurance companies. And then I turn around and I sell it to a group of insurance companies. And then when they start coming back to me, I say, well, you know, that's a really nice price, but uh, this company over here is giving me a 10% less price. So can you come back at that or not? And this company says, yeah, I can come back at 10% lower. Okay, great. Uh, I go back to that company. So if you have a good independent insurance agent, they're the one creating the competition. And the mistake I see a lot of people do is go out to multiple independent insurance agents. Now there's multiple people trying to pin companies against each other. And now it's just a mess. And those companies, and the last thing I'll say, I know this is a long answer. The last thing I'll say is those companies, when they start seeing submissions coming in from multiple different agents, it says to the companies that the client is not a committed client and they're just looking for the lowest price. And you're actually going to get less bargaining power with a company if they're seeing a submission come in from multiple agents. So as a client, you have to be careful. You don't want to go out to a bunch of agencies because it can actually backfire on you. Now with your agency, can you speak a, a little bit about the, the claims process? Because I think that is um, certainly it's top of mind for me. Uh, insurance is insurance and, and it's there until there's an event. And, and then you, you want to be able to, to lean on someone that's going to be there for you. So when a claim arises, if policies are placed through your firm, 
are you guys available during that process or is it deal with the carrier? Yeah, that's a great question. So here's how the players lay out. Um, so when you have an insurance claim, the insurance company is the one that's going to pay the checks, right? The insurance agency, which is what I own, is not going to pay the checks. My role is to be your advisor. And so I'm absolutely involved in the process, but mostly when I need to. So what happens in a claim is I connect the policy owner, right? The client with the insurance company adjuster. And what I say to my client is, hey, this person better take great care of you. They better be really clear in their process and they better make sure that this comes out on the back end, how you expect it to come out. If in that process, you have any questions or you need my advocacy, this is when you need to bring me into the mix. If they're doing their job, you don't need me in the middle because ultimately that's just too many people and more communication you don't need. But if they're not, then this is when you need to come to me and get me pulled into the mix. And that's different than a lot of, you know, if you, again, coming back to that State Farm example, the person who sold you the insurance at State Farm has zero connection with a claim. They're not going to be able to help you. They're not going to be able to give you any advice. They're not even necessarily going to be able to see the claim in their systems or anything like that. And that's true in a lot of places with some in, independent insurance agents, you know, aren't going to get involved either. So that's a question you probably want to ask, the one you just asked me. What happens in a claim scenario and can I count on you to be my advocate through that process? Okay, so uh, outside of the, the general policies, do you guys get into uh, umbrellas and some of the more complicated coverages as well? Yeah, so... The term umbrella gets uh, misconstrued a lot. So generally in the insurance world, when we say the, the term umbrella, we're talking about excess liability coverage. Now, liability coverage is really simple to understand. It's when bad things happen to other people because of you, your home, or your business. So I've got a claim going on right now where someone slipped, a tenant in an apartment complex slipped and fell on their way out to the car. They had a broken arm. They decided to hire a personal injury attorney. We're navigating that process. The, the liability coverage on that person's policy is what is covering them for that situation. An umbrella is excess liability. So usually we have about a million dollars of liability coverage. That million dollars is definitely going to cover that person's broken arm no matter how bad the lawsuit, well, I should, shouldn't say no matter how, very likely to cover that no matter how bad it is. But could it go above and beyond a million dollars? Yeah, it could. And certainly if you have a lot of assets that you're worried about higher numbers, then you want more liability coverage than a million dollars. And that's where an umbrella comes in place. You can get an extra million. So now you have two. You could get a $10 million umbrella. Now you have $11 million in a loss scenario where something bad happened to someone else because of you. In the commercial real estate world, sometimes people say umbrella when they're talking about an insurance policy that covers their entire portfolio, as opposed to one policy for this location, another policy for this location, another policy for this location. In the insurance world, we would call that a master policy or a portfolio policy. This is bringing multiple locations together, sometimes even with separate LLCs for every single location, bringing them together on one master policy so that it's oftentimes cheaper. It's easier to add a property or remove a property. There's lots of advantages to master 
policies. Um, so I don't know if you're referring to a master policy or an umbrella, but those that's the, you know, I hear those terms kind of interchanged and, and mixed up a little bit. As, as an investor, if you have LLCs that are set up for each transaction that you're involved in uh, or in each long-term hold, um, and your each individual property has its own policy, and you then want to cover vis-a-vis -vis excess uh, through an umbrella, or I didn't even realize that it was a consideration that instead of having individual policies on each property, you can have one master policy that covers the different LLCs. Yeah, absolutely. So a, a rule of thumb is the LLCs need to have at least 50% similar ownership across the LLCs. So if you've got drastically different ownership structures between one LLC and another, then a master policy probably doesn't work for you. But especially if you're, you know, I see a lot of scenarios where you're a singer, single owner LLC and you're purchasing one to four unit dwellings, right? And you've got a schedule of them. Maybe you're in a, a town, it's a college town, you're doing student housing, and you're just buying all these houses up, right? They're all, all these LLCs are under essentially the same owner, or at least certainly 50% the same owner. And now we can just schedule those on one policy. And it makes it a lot simpler. One potential negative to doing it that way is how it splits out the cost for your accounting. Right. And so that can create a problem is now I'm getting a bill for $50,000 once a year for my 50 different properties, but I've got to pay out of a different bank account because that's how I've set up my accounting. So sometimes people don't do master policies simply because it doesn't work for how they want to do their accounting, but absolutely you can put it together. So does a master policy though, give uh, let's face it, you know, we're, we're based here in New York. Uh, it's a highly litigious society. Yeah. Um, it, it, does it give the less, um, let me be careful here. Does it give um, attorneys a bigger target where if I had, for example, a, a four family, a four family, a, a 10 family and a, a six family, each is in its own LLC, all under my ownership, but separate LLCs, same ownership structure. Um, everyone is in kind of a silo, which is part of what we're taught, right? Keep it separate and distinct. And right. there's a, a policy for the value plus or minus with your excess on each individual piece. Now we lump that all together. Uh, perhaps there's not an asset there that's worth over 2 million as an individual, but together it's 15 million. Are we giving attorneys a bigger target or is that not the way it works? Is the liability still stripped down to the individual asset where this potential event occurred? Well, I, I think the, the hard answer would have to be answered by a, an attorney ultimately to say if they think there's any, you know, when, when an attorney is going to file a lawsuit, they're going to sue anyone and everyone. So if they see any connection between entities, they're probably going to try and bring those entities in. Could you argue that an insurance policy that brings them together could potentially create that? I suppose. But I mean, just the fact that the person exists is going to potentially bring them together in the same way. The purpose of the siloing of the LLCs is to separate those things out. Um, so in all the conversations that I have had with attorneys, while obviously not giving legal advice myself, 
Um, the insurance policy being together does not create any issues with veils, does not create any issues with silos, doesn't create a problem there. But could there be an argument from an attorney? Well, all these insurance, all these are on the same insurance policy. Uh, I suppose there could, but how's that argument different than, well, all of these are owned by the same owner? Uh, are, are there policies available, uh, maybe the professional liability policies? Uh, for example, uh, we, this is a real scenario. One of the agents was hosting an open house. It was three doors down. Someone was walking on that block and they tripped and they broke their arm or their elbow, whatever it was. And they sued us because we were hosting an open house three doors down, had nothing to do with that property, nothing to do with the why they were there, no connection whatsoever. Um, but nevertheless, because they looked up and they saw a sign, we're now named in a lawsuit. And of course, uh, you know, no damages were came as a result, but there are damages. It cost us six, seven grand to have to hire the attorney to go and defend it. Are there policies for that type of stuff for the agents? Yeah, so... So I think it's important to differentiate two things you said. You talked about professional liability, sometimes called errors and omissions mm -hmm. coverage, something that all realtors should have, right? And that is coverage for bad advice or, or considered bad advice that you give to someone. So you say you should buy a house, turns out to be you know a money pit, they sue you over it or something like that. The example you just described was a physical injury to someone uh, who is accusing you of being the reason for that physical injury. And that would be general liability coverage, um, what we were talking about before. So as a realtor, it's a really good idea to have um, an insurance policy that it encompass, it encompasses a few things. I would say uh, errors and omissions is the most common example. Um, and, you know, realtors often think that's the only thing they have to have because I don't have any property, uh, you know, things of that nature, right? And, and that's a fine perspective to come from. But you should also probably have general liability coverage. I would argue your general liability policy in that scenario would have defended you up to that $6,000 until it got thrown out. So that would be a great example of why a realtor should have a general liability policy. And then um, hired and non-owned auto coverage would be the other. You're driving your vehicle around all the time for your business. If you're in an accident, even if you don't have anyone else in the car, like a client or anything like that, and it is deemed to have been during your use of that car for your business, it's possible. I don't think it's super probable, but it's possible that your personal auto insurance denies the claim and says, well, you were using that car for your business. So some hired and non-owned auto coverage would address that issue. And then the last thing would be some prop, some business personal property coverage. This is just coverage for your stuff, your computer, some items. If you do have an office, um, you know, whatever your desk and chairs and things of that nature, generally, there's a very limited amount of those things that need coverage. But that would be a quick litany of the types of things a real estate in a real estate agent um, might consider for insurance. The ENO is an absolute, but are there exposures out there for general liability or property coverage or hired and non-owned auto? Yeah, absolutely. And Jeremy, what's the best way for folks to reach you if they wanted to take their portfolio uh, as we are going to candidly do and, and have it looked at and see if we can't centralize and and create some efficiencies here. What's the best way to find you and to reach you? 
Absolutely. Shineinsurance.com is the easiest way. And uh, we have an online portal there that you can submit information or you could reach out to me. I'm all over the socials. Uh, I hang out a lot on, on LinkedIn and spaces like that. And then again, feel free to check out our YouTube channel. As you said, there's a lot of uh, info there and hopefully it provides a lot of value to your listeners. Well, this was uh, very valuable for me. I, I can say for sure, we're going to double back and take a look. This is a good time to to try and optimize the greatest way we have found to increase value in your portfolio is not to go buy another deal. It's the creative efficiencies in the deals that you currently own. Uh, so we're going to definitely pursue this. I, I can't thank you enough for the time, Jeremy, today. This was really informative. Yeah, James, happy to help and obviously happy to chat with you or any of your listeners about how to limit the cost and at the same time, make sure you've got the right coverage. Jeremy Goodrich, everyone. As always, please stay safe. Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast.